Hello, and welcome to Writer's Group Therapy. I'm Tom. And I'm Roshni. We're writers helping writers with whatever writing ailments you might have. Whether it's related to your craft or your career, we can help. Are you ready for your session? The The doctors doctors are are in. in. So, Tom, what would you say is your biggest addiction? My biggest addiction? I used to be addicted to caffeine, but now I think it's uh, endlessly scrolling through TikTok and Facebook. (laughs) Well, I think you can guess what mine are. Cats and Starbucks? Pretty much, yeah. But honestly, I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's also probably pretty, you know, pretty tame. Yeah. But I was wondering, how do we write convincing characters that deal with addiction? So today, to help us out with that, we've got Ted Perkins, a former Warner Brothers and Universal Studio executive, producer, screenwriter, and now author, who had a really unique way of dealing with his own alcohol addiction. He watched 100 movies in 100 days about addiction, and then he wrote a book about it called Addicted, Addicted in Film. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, you guys. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yay! We're so happy. So full disclosure, Ted and I met actually on set a few weeks ago when you were actually working, I think, for another like a mental health organization, right? Yeah, I, um, I, I facilitate meetings for an organization called Smart Recovery, and they're a evidence-based secular alternative to Alcoholics Anonymous or 12 Steps. And it's growing in influence around the country, around the world. It's got offices in 21 countries and, uh, you know, 14 languages. It's a very exciting organization. It's growing uh, fast. I've been working on the marketing side of them. I do all of their videos. I built up their YouTube channel. I facilitate meetings for them. And I was actually doing a uh, commercial for them, their new About video, which um, is going to go live pretty soon here. So um, it, this is a great organization. And, you know, it's, it helped me in my own recovery. So I'm sort of giving back by working with them. I'm seeing a theme here. But before we get into the recovery part, we should probably get into the how you got there part. So tell us a little bit about your Hollywood journey. You were a producer. You were an executive at some of the biggest places. How did you get started? Well, you know, it's, it's a funny story, but this is all like uh, 30 years worth of uh, history. But I came to, um, I worked in private television in Spain uh, for a while, and I used to do some of the interstitials and interview shows, and I interviewed movie stars for Canal Plus, and I was I was part of their launch uh, when private television started in Spain, um, which was a very exciting time. Um, and I actually worked on the draft of the, uh, of the translation of the actual, um, the, the, uh, the law that actually established private television. And I thought that television was a very exciting industry to get into um, and a need for content and small short form content. And, um, and so I started working with that. And then Warner Brothers kind of scouted me and said, oh, you should come work for us. And so I moved back to the States and I worked for Warner Brothers in the merchandising department. And then, then I got involved in international film sales. Um, and while I was in international film sales, I wrote a script and I had no illusions of selling the script, but I, um, I sold it uh, like my first script out of the gate. And I thought it was like, that was pretty cool. So um, I signed a, a multi-picture deal with the producers uh, from a German conglomerate after that. And so I was like writing at night and then working during the day doing film sales. And I also got inside my boss's office and read every document that I could about international film financing and pre-sales, et cetera. So um, I learned a lot and did a lot of film sales, and that industry is pretty cool. Um, and then uh, I 
knew about a job that would just open up at Universal. And my friend said, you've got to get this job. So um, they helped me get the job. And, and then I worked at Universal and I had a really wonderful run working in, th in the international production and, and marketing department. And we worked on huge films like Jurassic Park and Waterworld. And, and uh, it was just a fabulous opportunity. And then I got involved in co-productions and acquisitions. And at the time, uh, co-productions weren't that common. So we did the first, uh, I, I spearheaded the first co-production ever done with, um, with mainland China, with China Film. Uh, we did one with Argentina, with Spain, with India. Um, and I was the guy that was like getting into all these really exotic markets doing local productions. And, you know, cut to 20 years later, now everybody does local production. Um, and it's uh, so I was kind of like a little bit ahead of my time. And then um, I was then recruited to um, I wrote some more screenplays and I sold some more screenplays to like Searchlight and to Lionsgate. And sort of like that was like my moonlighting job that paid great dividends. Um, and I liked it. Um, and I wanted to be like a full time screenwriter, but it was too lonely for me. And I still liked having regular jobs. And I felt that I could do both things. So um, I kept on working in into, into independent film sales. And eventually I got involved with a streaming company that started a streaming platform for Latin music, which was one of the first sort of, sort of Spotify like um, digital. Um, rights distribution channels. And I got very intrigued with um, what would become streaming media and uh, subscription-based you know, video on demand and uh, subscriber-based video on demand. So I got involved in that with a couple companies and I worked for a Chinese conglomerate. And then I got uh, headhunted by a, a Chinese venture capital company that I'd worked with on the Chinese co-production. And then I started doing productions in China, uh, which was just hilarious. And the film that probably most stuck out was uh, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, which was a movie that was distributed by Fox Searchlight. And and that was just terrific, you know. And so my life has been like going back and forth to the Cannes Film Festival on, you know, private jets and first class all the time and and uh, just having a blast. And then uh, things were going well and I sold a bunch of scripts. And then there was some periods when I wasn't selling that many scripts. And then I got uh, involved in the recovery sector and I, I realized that there was a tremendous potential in that. So I, I've been doing that ever since. And now I'm now I'm dabbling in a bunch of things. And I've always wanted to write a book. So I, I decided now is the time. <laughs> I have the time and the money and the, and the free time to do it. That is awesome. And I just have to make a comment on something you said way, way back in the beginning of your of your story. And I sold my screenplay right away. And I'm like, oh, man, if only it was that easy. So we'll, we'll do a whole other episode about how easy it is. I'm just kidding. Well, you know what? I can tell you a funny anecdote about that. And it yeah. might actually inspire uh, your listeners. Um, and this is actually a true story. But um, so when I wanted to sell my script, I realized that agents wouldn't read it because I was a nobody. You know, nobody had read me before. And it's the sort of the chicken and egg conundrum that, you know, all of the writers face. And so I realized that that the only way around it was to figure out a way to get agents to read my stuff. So what I did was I uh, took out a loan from my father um, at some ridiculous interest rate. And so what I did was I emailed the, I sent the script to, you know, 30 agents. And I told them that I was an independent film financier from Boston and that I wanted to meet with them because I wanted to finance this film. And I was looking for movie stars um, that would sign on, and I would make offers as soon as they showed interest. And so the minute you sort of like wave money around or you th they think that you're waving money around, 
then they will read your script and pay attention. So I had to take a bunch of like lunch meetings and sometimes I would rent a Mercedes to make sure that they saw me parking my Mercedes or had my Mercedes of valet parking to make it seem instead of my shitty old Honda to make it seem like I actually was a film financier from Boston. I had to buy new suits and ties and everything. And I sort of played the part of this financier. And the reason that I knew film finance was I was working as an assistant in a company that did film financing and distribution. So I read all the contracts and I knew exactly what I was talking about. Um, and I knew, you know, how the financing worked. And then so lo and behold, finally, after doing this for a while, um, several agents gave me several pieces of talent. So we got Kim Cattrall, John Savage, Mal Malcolm McDowell. I mean, at one point we had, you know, a bunch of other people like actors involved. Uh, we had, um, God, I can't remember, but it was a while back. Uh, Martin Landau was attached, who was like went on to win an Oscar that year for Ed Wood. I mean, there was like people circling the project all of a sudden. And for no other reason, I mean, it was a good script. Thank you. Thankfully, it was like the, there was proof in the pudding. But but I had to sort of like pretend to be somebody that I wasn't in order to get people's attention. And then then the product sold itself, thankfully. And then a German conglomerate came in and just bought the whole thing, paid me, paid my producer's fee, hired all the talent, made the movie, and then gave me a two-picture deal on top of it. So I kind of just uh, walked the walk and pretended like I was somebody that I wasn't, but that's how I sold my first script. Wow. Okay, that yeah. is a Hollywood story right there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had someone give me the advice of you have to be your own like urban legend kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I just figured, why not? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? They find out that I'm not. See, the thing is, when I was working in independent film, it's all smoke and mirrors. People come in and say, you know, I'm a billionaire and I want to finance this movie. And people believe them. They go to these, the Cannes Film Festival and everybody's just talking bullshit 24-7. Only 90%, 90% of what you hear on the Cannes Film Festival is complete nonsense. And the other 10% are the people who are actually making movies and getting shit done. The other 90%, it's all blah, blah, blah. I've got this film fund. I've got this tax break. I've got this equity financier. I've got mezzanine financing. I've got a pre-sale in a studio in Mexico. I've got this tax break. I mean, it's all smoke and mirrors. And But the thing is, they're not bad people. They're not lying necessarily. It just means that they need somebody to say yes for those things to fall into place. Like I'm reminded of this famous anecdote, and I don't know how true it is, but that um, Steve Allen and, and Bill Gates were in a, after a, a meeting with IBM, IBM said, uh, Bill Gates had said, yeah, we've got this operating system. It's, you know, we can deliver it next month. It's awesome. You're going to love it. And that was Windows. And then in the elevator ride on the way down, Paul Allen turned to, turned to Bill Gates and said, what the fuck were you talking about? What operating system? He's like, don't worry, we'll make it. So it was kind of like once people, you get to yes, then you make it so. And that's what the film industry really is on so many levels, is that you just need somebody to give you a, a yes with the promise of a future deal. And then that sort of obviates, you know, your, your efforts and, and knows that you're going to get compensation. Um, and that's just way the, the way that, op, you know, the industry operates. It's all a dream, really. I mean, la la land. It's all smoke and mirrors. So yeah, you, this Hollywood story is just amazing. And like some of these Hollywood stories go, you get to that second act and things don't go right. And how did the um, your your addiction uh, come around? How did that develop? Was it just kind of snuck up on you through all the you know all the events and all the schmoozing and stuff? Well, I mean, I don't know what proximity you guys have to the to the film business, and everybody has different levels. But uh, you know, even now today, you know, cocktails and cocktail hours and drinking and socializing is a huge part of the job. And uh, you know, I was 
you know, it's funny thing about it is that growing up, I was in the, my father was in the foreign service and it was our job. I lived in all these different countries and it was our job to steal people's secrets and to influence political leaders and kings and queens and, and chancellors and, and prime ministers and spies. And, and, you know, we had parties at my house growing up every other weekend. My, my, my mother was constantly buying liquor at the, at the store and then, you know, supplying liquor to all these people that were drinking at our house. And so I was surrounded by that all the time. I didn't drink, but I mean, I was, I was around it all the time. And I knew that parties were just a blast and people would drink and they'd have a blast. And so like most people, I carried that whole ethos into my adult life. And, and uh, you know, as, as part of when you work at Universal, like at one point I had to go to the Cap, uh, uh, which is sort of like this huge hotel and this very expensive hotel and in uh in can and you know somebody had run out of money and i had to bring like a stack of money so we could buy cocktails for bruce willis and a bunch of other movie stars that were parting up and promoting movies for us and so you know drinking was just a huge part of the job and when you're doing international sales i mean you really i know it sounds kind of like quaint but like there's certain people that you just won't do a deal with they won't do a deal with you until they get drunk with you like especially in asian countries like you know, I, I remember doing business with Korean clients and you literally had to go out and get totally shit faced with them and make a fool of yourself. Um, same thing with Japanese, you know, they go to the geishas and things like that. It was just part of like, and, and unfortunately it's all very, like very male bonding sort of toxic masculinity bullshit, but it's part of the job. Um, so, uh, you know, I was surrounded by that. And then, uh, and, you know, drink, drinking alcohol is I, mean, I never did drugs or anything, but, you know, drinking alcohol is all great and fun until, you know, your life becomes less structured. And when you're a screenwriter, your life becomes less structured. And, you know, I was, I was my own boss and I had my own companies and interests and that was less structured. So, you know, I realized I started like using alcohol to just like pass the time between deals or waiting for people to read my scripts and then give me notes so I could then do the notes. So, you know, alcohol never influenced my output. In fact, you know, some of the best scripts I think I ever sold, I was, I was, I wrote them when I was drinking, not while I was drinking, I wasn't drunk while I wrote them, but like I was drinking at the time. Um, and just, and as I say, you know, drinking is really, really fun until it's not. And everybody gets to that point where it's not at certain points. Some people never get to that point, but I got to the point in mind where I was like, this is not really helping my life. So I just quit. And so I, I needed some help doing it. So I turned to movies and I, got serious about it. And I went to mutual support meetings and I got involved in SMART. And then I started facilitating my meetings and, and now I help others in their recovery. And it's, a, you know, it's an incredible volunteer opportunity and it's very rewarding. It's sort of a way to reaffirm my own, you know, belief in the perfectibility of imperfect human nature. So going back a bit, you didn't have like a, I guess like that turning point moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be doing this. You just kind of woke up one day and were like, why am I drinking? No, I mean, everybody has their own sort of rock bottoms. Certain people mm -hmm. have like different rock bottoms. And I certainly had some bad episodes that happened that, you know, I regret. But none of them led to danger and none of them led to, you know, any, you know, some hurt feelings. And, you know, I'm sure there's certain things could have gone differently. And um, But uh, luckily, I emerged from much of that unscathed. Um, you know, certain people, it takes getting a DUI. Sometimes it takes a failed relationship or a breakup or a, a divorce or 
know, going to court or going to jail or, you know, killing somebody or what, I mean, everybody reaches a certain point of aha. And I'm lucky that I got mine uh, fairly right away. And, uh, you know, there's certain times when I said, aha, and then I quit for long periods of time, but then I went back thinking, oh, I can do this. And then I realized I couldn't. So, you know, everybody, you know, everybody's journey with alcohol is different. Um, and, you know, for anybody who still drinks to whatever degree, they're still on that journey. You know, everybody who drinks alcohol, even moderately, has the potential to at some point in their lives, you know, abuse alcohol. And uh, I'm not saying that everybody's like skating on thin ice. That's that's not true of everybody. There's, you know, 90 percent of people can can drink moderately or not at all and have perfectly wonderful lives and not have an issue. But but for certain other people, you know, especially if you grow up around it or you're genetically predisposed or, you know, there's like a, a zillion reasons that you could come up with for for why people drink to excess. You know, certain people can't. There's a wonderful movie that I talk about in the book called um, Another Round, which looks at, you know, the fact that, you know, drinking can be fun in certain circumstances until it's not. And it studies it from certain different angles with different characters. Um, and that's actually probably my my favorite movie about the subject of alcohol, use and abuse. So now we're going to get into the actual book here. It sounds like you were doing a couple different things like the smart recovery and, you know, the movies and whatever else, mm -hmm. like concurrently to get over your alcohol dependency. But why did you think that watching a hundred movies was the best way to get over it? Like, why did you think that one of all the things? Well, um, you know, um, I don't I wouldn't necessarily qualify what you said was entirely correct. Like I didn't do a bunch of things to stop my alcohol addiction. It was like alcohol addiction was like along with working, you know, I could still work. I could still make money. In fact, you know, I think probably the most amount of money I ever made in a year was when I was still drinking, but, but I eventually by stopping, I had more time on my hand because, you know, when you don't drink, you have a lot of more free time. And so, um, I, what I realized was that, you know, you can sort of dip your toe in the sobriety world or you can go all in. And the problem I think that a lot of people have is that they like, they kind of think that they're special and they can get away with it, that, you know, yeah, they're gonna quit, but they don't need any help and they don't have to read any books and they don't have to go to any meetings and they don't have to have a shrink. Can, they can do it all on their own. They're perfectly strong, they're, they're healthy, they can do it. You know, I've got great willpower, I can totally do this. And, and most people fail. And I realized that, you know, I had to kind of take it a little bit more seriously than just, you know, reading a book or going to a couple meetings and checking a box. So I started going to meetings, but I also, and I, and I read like a lot of books about addiction. I was interested because I, I'm an avid reader and I'm interested in neurology, biology, physics, and cosmology and psychology and psychiatry, anthropology. Um, so I looked at all the reasons why people have drunk, have drunk alcohol over the years or taken drugs over centuries. You know, I, I looked into the, uh, all of the all of the issues surrounding all the rich sort of like intellectual landscape around excess, even the philosophical aspects of stoicism. And I mean, let's not forget, like, you know, in the Temple of Delphi, you know, ins inscribed in the Temple of Delphi is like, you know, seek moderation in all things after know thyself. It's seek moderation in all things. So people have been grappling with this idea of excess versus moderation and, and you know, give it, living a good life for, for many years. I thought, well, there's a great exercise here. Um, and I wanted to learn more. And I read a lot of books, but I, I realized, you know, there's some great movies out there. And I'm a movie guy. I might as well, you know, box myself in and see a bunch of movies. So I saw a bunch of movies that 
I had blown off because like when I was working in the student, nobody really wanted to do those movies. Like train spotting was great, but you know, that was an outlier. Like, you know, drug movies are, are, are kind of a downer. Let's do a comedy. You know, it was more like it wasn't a really good business model. Um, but I realized that after I started seeing the movies, I could see parts of myself in each movie, and then I could see parts of my solution in each movie. And I thought they were just really interesting films to watch. And so I watched 100 movies. Some of them were horrible. Some were great. And I wrote, I chose 25 that I thought were really, really wonderful and really relevant. And those are the ones that I included in the book. Did you actually think you were, hey, I'm going to write a book about these? Or was it just, I'm going to watch these movies first. And then later you thought, oh, I should write a book about this. Oh, no. Um, no, I just, I watched the movies first. And then I realized, wow, this is really interesting. There's a lot of great movies. And then, you know, in my Smart Recovery meetings and the, my colleagues at Smart Recovery, you know, occasionally I would say, hey, you know, people in the, in the management, I'd say, hey, have you guys ever... Have you, have you ever seen Lost Weekend? You know, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's an incredible movie. You know, there's this guy who he put a list together of all the recovery-related, you know, addiction and recovery-related movies that have ever been made. And he passed away. And he was like a teacher, a professor at like some university in Texas. And they gave me a copy of, of, his, of his list. Um, and I saw most of the movies that I had seen, plus a couple, couple more that I hadn't. And then I checked those out. And then I realized, God, you know, you mean nobody's written a book about this? I mean, this is really cool. I mean, why not? And so I was looking for a topic that to write a book about. And I was confounded because I'm like, you know, you should. And I wanted, I didn't want to write a fiction book because in fiction, I'm happy writing screenplays. That's my, my efforts in fiction are isolated to screenplays. I've already got that format down. I'm comfortable with it. I'm not really a good long form creative uh, fiction writer. I mean, I tried that and I just didn't really feel like it was my thing. Um, but nonfiction was, and I could find my voice in nonfiction. I'm a little bit sarcastic, a little edgy, um, a little snarky sometimes. And, uh, I wanted something that could reflect me as a, as a thinker. Um, but also, you know, something that I'm an expert on. So I figured, well, <laughs> there's two things I'm kind of an expert on. One is a film industry and the next is addiction and recovery. So why not just create a mashup of those two things and create the book addiction, you know, addicted in film. So, you know, it just seemed like a natural segue. Like, it's so obvious that it was just yeah. smacking me across the face. It's really interesting. I have, you know, I've seen the outline of your book and read a little synopsis, but we haven't actually gotten to see the book yet. It's coming out right as we record this. It's going to be coming out. So uh, give us a little teaser. What are some samples of teachable moments you found most helpful from some of the movies? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, first off, you know, I think... Like, for instance, you know, if you're looking at, if you go early and you look at Lost Weekend, the Lost Weekend with Ray in the land, you know, it's the first time that anybody really knew what alcoholism was. It was the first time that the national conversation about alcoholism had opened up. And so what's interesting from a historical perspective is that you look at, like, how they define alcoholism, how, the, like, the use of the word itself was new at the time. Um, it was sort of like society's dirty little secret that had been swept under the rug. Nobody knew what delirium tremens was. You know, it was horrifying. And, you know, a lot of people had come out of World War II and were drinking a lot. And alcohol use at the time was really increasing. And, um, you know, it's wonderful to see that film now in a historical context and then compare that to where we are now as a society. 
um, when you know AA had just started back in the day when this film was made to where they are now, where they are now with like thousands or millions of you know adherents and how many people and what the recovery industry and what drugs and alcohol is now is very interesting in and of itself as a history lesson. And then you know when you see you know Don Burnham um, in the last weekend walking around on a weekend looking for money so he can buy a drink. It just sometimes it reminds me of some of my stupid, you know, weekends where I was like, oh, you know, I've got nothing to do. I just got to find a liquor store that's open so I can buy some beer and just kind of do something with my time. And that sort of desperation of getting a next drink or, you know, when you when you're uh, when you have an alcohol addiction, you kind of plan around when you can drink and how you can procure alcohol to drink. Um, and a lot of your day revolves around, I mean, a lot of your thinking revolves around that kind of planning and it takes priority over other things. And, and that's scary in and of itself, because like when you're thinking about how you can get your next beer, as opposed to like, you know, picking up your child from daycare, that's a problem. So, um, and that's what, you know, a lot of times happens. And so you, when you see that reflected in a movie like Lost Weekend, um, it, it's sort of like a wake up call because you think, okay, it's not just that guy in that crazy movie, that's me. Um, and when you sort of, when you see yourself represented in three dimensions, uh, objectively, um, not just subjectively in your own mind, because we all are so biased that we think we're wonderful people and we don't have problems. But when we see an objective reality reflection of ourselves with bad behaviors and all the ramifications, it's actually a very profound thing to see. Um, so I, I saw a lot of that. And, and, I, and I say that in the book and that there's great value in seeing people hit rock bottom because like, thank God that's not you, but it could be you. And actually there's a lot of you in that person. So that's a kind of a cautionary tale. And that, that goes for a lot of the movies in the, in, in the, uh, that I cover in the book. And, you know, let's not forget that, that uh, the, the, the story of alcohol and drug use and abuse is not limited to the people who are addicted. I mean, there's also the friends and family of people who are addicted and how they help or try to help or how they sometimes don't help uh, their kids or their family members or their spouses. So I take a look at movies like um, Days of Wine and Roses, where, you know, you've got a dysfunctional relationship of two people who think they love each other, but they're really just in love with each other's addiction to alcohol. And they're just drinking buddies. Or you look at a movie like Beautiful Boy, where, you know, Steve Carell's trying to figure out how he can help his son. And he realizes that sometimes you just can't, like there's only so much you can do. And those are, those are hard lessons for a lot of people in real life. And so to see those stories and those conflicts portrayed in movies and, and seeing people deal with the dramatic issues and try to solve them in honest ways, not always, you know, winning at the end, sometimes failing miserably and, you know, sometimes dying at the end. It's wonderful. And it's important to see that reflected in film, because let's not forget, you know, stories are metaphors and stories are the currency of, of our time. And they always have been, you know, people have been sitting around fires telling stories since the invention of language. It's a very important part of how we see the world and how we define the world and how we model the world. And movies, uh, you know, really help us do that. And they're very therapeutic, at least they were for me. And I, and I think that's what I'm trying to convey in the book. So two-part question then, following up on that. What was your criteria for picking a movie to put in the book or to help you in your recovery process? And what would be, in your opinion, the best and the worst movies representing 
like the recovery process or like, you know, the people around you or something like what would be like, I would recommend this to someone trying to, you know, get over this addiction. And I would be like, no, stay away from this movie. So there's your question right there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what's the first part of the question? Uh, What was your criteria for choosing a movie? So, well, my criteria is that um, there, there are a lot of movies about drug and alcohol addiction that, that just show people, you know, who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and they die in the end or they get well at the end, but not too much happens. There's not too much meat on that bone. And, and a lot of movies are just gratuitous eye candy of like people hitting rock bottom or what you call addiction porn, which is basically, you know, people love looking at a train wreck. You know, people stop at the, when there's an accident on the 405, everybody's rubbernecking because yeah, you don't really want to see the accident, but you'd love to see the accident, you know? And so there's a lot of movies that just glorify drug and alcohol use and show it as bad, but they have nothing really to say about how to recover, why the person got to be where they are, what it all means, what's more important, like, you know, like a more redeeming message or a theme. And so I chose movies that have something, you know, very interesting to say about, you know, drug and alcohol recovery. Now, remember, drug and alcohol, alcohol recovery is not like a set science. It's very much in flux. There's a lot of different opinions about how to solve the problem. And, and you know, there's stuff going on in Washington right now that the recovery in universe has been at odds with itself over several different issues for, for decades now. There's people that are on one side that say, we need to like, you know, criminalize everything and put everybody in jail. That'll teach them. And then there's others that say, well, that doesn't do anything really. I mean, that's why the disastrous war on drug was such a disaster and cost a trillion dollars and led to ruined lives and so many people in jail and achieved nothing. Now you've got, you know, Portugal and Holland and Switzerland totally decriminalizing drugs and realizing that it's an incredible, you know, way to, to save lives and help people and actually reduce incarceration and save a lot of money, taxpayer money. And then you've got people in, in Portland who are decriminalizing psychedelic mushrooms because they have applications in, in alcohol uh, use and abuse um, uh, therapies. I actually in, got involved in one of those. And, and so, uh, you know, with an industry that's so at odds with itself and so, you know, still learning as it goes, um, there's a lot of uh, movies that reflect that sort of like dynamic conflict between points of view. And a lot of the movies that I, that I, that I talk about are ones where I could sort of extrapolate what was being, what was happening in the movie and then have a deeper or longer, more meaningful conversation about all sides of the issue. So in many ways, I do talk about the movies, but I talk about the movies as a springboard to say, okay, this movie is a wonderful example of this issue. And I want to talk about this issue. And so that's, that's what kind of like fills out the book. Um, and, uh, and that's why it was fun to write about, because if it was just a book about like, let's talk about leaving Las Vegas. I mean, it would, I, it would only take me six paragraphs to really describe what the movie's about. And then it would just sound like a film review. But if I could talk about, you know, the fact that, um, that Ben Sanderson decided that he wanted to commit suicide by drinking himself to death and that he was unable to find meaning in life and that perhaps, you know, people with addiction are having an issue of existentialist uh, problem of finding meaning in a world which is more fragmented and atomistic. And, and, and yes, we're so connected by social media, but we're more isolated than ever before. And the increasing levels of ennui and the mental health challenges exacerbated by coronavirus, 
I mean, if I could have a deeper conversation about how people are having a crisis of meaning in their lives and that Ben Sanderson's decision is actually com completely consistently logical with a personal decision to find out that like, you know what, I don't want to fight anymore. I just want to go all the way to the end and I want to go out the way that I want to go out. That's a very profound message. It's not something that a lot of people will agree with because most people fight the fight. They fight their addictions, they come out the other side and they don't commit suicide. Sadly, a lot of people do, but you know, the conversation about uh, the fact that, uh, that alcohol abuse and, and drug abuse is like a huge critical indicating factor for prevalence for suicide is an important conversation to have and guides a lot of public policy decisions um, going forward. So looking at leaving Las Vegas is, I think, a crucial part of having that conversation. And, and it opens up the opportunity of having uncomfortable conversations because let's face it, drug and alcohol addiction are uncomfortable topics that a lot of people would rather not deal with, but you have to, especially nowadays when you've got you know, gazillions of people dying to fentanyl overdoses. The conversation has never been more relevant. And if movies help us have that conversation in an open forum that's entertaining, enlightened, didactic, and, and, and not too pedantic, then I think it's a win. Well, it sounds great from, from, from when that, I mean, addiction's not great, but from that perspective, you know, kind of how your the book is being used to explain those things, it sounds like your book would almost be like a textbook for writers who are trying to understand addiction that don't have that firsthand experience if they're going to be writing about it. Do you think that that's somewhat accurate in some ways? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, if the focus of your audience is for, for writers who, you know, want to figure out ways to write and be successful and sell and and um, and write for the market and um, and be inspired and, and also deal with their own demons. Because, you know, let's face it, a lot of writers, there's a whole group here called Writers in Recovery. Um, they have a film festival every year. In fact, I, one of one of the films that I worked on is actually in the film, film festival. And um, but, uh, you know, I think the crucial part is that, you know, writing is something that is very difficult. It comes from an from a place of like a deep em emptiness in your soul that has to be filled and then conveyed and represented in art. And you're always faced with self-doubt. Um, you never have the assurances that what you're doing is meaningful. It's meaningful for you in the moment, just like alcohol is giving you a sense of meaning and purpose when you drink it or taking a drug makes you feel great or meth makes you like a genius for at least two hours until you need more meth. All that, all those things are, are what creative people deal with all the time. And so I think there's a lot of parallels into, you know, looking at these films and looking at creativity and looking at writing are important um, avenues that I think writers can explore. And, and I'm not saying that every writer is going to become like an alcoholic or anything, but, you know, think about sort of like the ethos that we're surrounded by that, you know, you know, uh, was it that the, you know, Faulkner was, was a huge whiskey alcoholic and that, you know, Ernest Hemingway was a huge drinker, and that was one of the reasons he was so successful. I mean, you know, the whole we're, we're surrounded by these ideas that like you almost have to be an alcoholic to <clears throat> to be a good writer, or you know, you have to suffer pain and addiction and withdrawal and, and, and to be inspired. None of those things are true. Um, and you know, I even talk about it in in my chapter about A Star Is Born and Crazy Heart, which is a story about like, and the, the chapter is entitled "Mamas Don't Let Your uh, Your." your sons grow up to be country mu music stars. You know, country music is saturated with alcohol. Like you, you're not taken seriously unless you have a drinking problem. You know, it's the, it's oh, yeah. like one of those, things, <laughs> there's, a tear, there's a tear in my beer. It's part of the whole, and let's not forget that alcohol 
is is culturally relevant to you know so many cultures and so many creative cultures as well from art to writing to you know everything it's all bound up in in that um and certain people think that you need to take psychedelics to become a better artist or writer or thinker or philosopher and maybe that's true you know maybe that that's part of the process but you know, everything has to be done in moderation and, and everything has to be, you know, people have to realize that, uh, you know, if you're writing and you want to make writing into a career, you, know, you certainly can't be medicating through that process. I've learned that, you know, the hard way, you know, it's a, you, you, you're much more productive and you can get more shit done. And I think ultimately you're a better, better writer, the clearer head you, you have, which is not to say that having some past pain and trauma and like life lived isn't good for you. It is, but like, don't necessarily ch- like look for a rock bottom just so you could write about it, <laughs> because that's a very expensive idea. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been amazing, Ted. Thank you so much. So if people want to find you or find the book, how can they find you online? Where can they find the book? All that good stuff. Oh, well, thank you uh, for everyone who's listening. Um, yeah, the book is available. Well, you can get all the information about, about where to buy the book by going to Amazon and just do Addicted in Film by Ted Perkins. And it's available on, on all major book platforms like Barnes & Noble and Kindle. And, you know, it's like basically like wherever you shop for books, it's going to be there. And if you want to get like a, a signed copy and, and, and join our movie club, um, you can go to addictedinfilm.com. So www addictedinfilm, all one word.com. And um, we're creating a community of people who uh, want to talk more about these movies and about writing and about creativity and about addiction and recovery. And so you join the movie club and we'll have every, every month we're going to have a, a watch party where we, um, where we watch a movie on, on Amazon Prime. And then we have a short discussion afterwards um, or you know on Zoom. And so I invite everybody to be part of that community. So make sure you check out Ted's book and we will see you guys soon. 